This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, music by composers from neighboring countries continues the Musica Chamber Ensemble's 17th season with works by Doc Nanyi, Dvorak, and others. Also, we follow Seeley's empowering journey in the musical The Color Purple with actress Taylor James. But first, it's carnival season, and we are going back to the archives to hear some of our best stories on different crews, parades, and traditions. Today, we are bringing you a 2021 episode of American Roots Shortcuts, where Nick Spitzer reports on the Northside Skull and Bones gang that takes to the streets early Mardi Gras morning. Mardi Gras in New Orleans isn't just about parades and beads on St. Charles Avenue or partying on Bourbon Street. Tucked away in the Treme neighborhood is the Backstreet Cultural Museum, a gathering place for Mardi Gras Indians and other masked revelers who enjoy centuries-old traditions, including the Skull and Bone Gang. The Northside Skull and Bone culture thing been around before Mardi Gras. And Mardi Gras started in the mid to late 1800s. But this culture connected to the Festival of the Day in Mexico through, the, uh, through Haiti and through the Caribbean. The bone man's is the tradition to start off Mardi Gras. When you see the skeletons, they come out 6 o'clock in the morning, and then the Indians, and then the rest of the Mardi Gras. Skull and bone men wear all black with white skeletons drawn on them, and their skull masks are made of paper mache. The bone men go door to door waking up the neighborhood. Mardi Gras Day starts out very early and scary, especially for little kids. The skull and bone thing, I'm 54 years old. They've been scary since I was a kid. They come out 5 o'clock in the morning and they're going to point at you and tell you, you ain't in school, you ain't living right, I'm coming to get you. You're doing wrong, this is what's going to happen to you. Oh no, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to do the right thing. Whatever you say, boss man, scare the hell out of you. <laughs> Sunpai Barnes leads the Northside Skull and Bone Gang that was formed around 1819. Well, we bring the spirits back to the street on Mardi Gras morning. You know, we wake up spirits from the cemetery and bring them back to the street, turn them loose on the city, out of this neighborhood, and we go all over the place, knocking door to door, in houses, waking the people up, and that's what we do. You know, we, we make them realize that life is short, so live a good, productive life while you can, because you're next. So. You might as well celebrate your life uh, while you got a chance. There's another historically black Mardi Gras tradition that's making a comeback, the baby dolls. The baby doll costumes are basically little girl costumes. They'll have giant baby uh, pacifiers on them, um, fun colored hair, wigs, makeup, and um, fishnet stockings, heels. So there's kind of an oxymoron between the baby doll part and the grown up woman part. So today we're at the Backstreet Cultural Museum and there's a bunch of Mardi Gras Indians out here so we're going to run around with them for a little bit. I see some Skull and Bones dudes over there too, right? And a load of other people in costume. So uh, we're kind of out to show up and uh, have our picture taken a lot today I think is probably part of the plans. <laughs> and when people see these outfits come out, everybody in town knows what this is about. Yeah. The, um, our, our pacifier, our umbrellas, our bottles. Yeah, a whole lot of good stuff in it. <laughs> a bunch of ladies, it's called the Gold Digger Baby Dolls. They get together, they get beautiful like a little baby dog, and 
they're gold diggers. <laughs> and they, hopefully they'll marry a rich man. <laughs> It did start around the time that the Indian tribes were getting together, and there were different factions around town. There were uptown baby dolls, and there were downtown baby dolls, and so we kind of call out what neighborhood we live in and where we're from. I want to keep the tradition going for my grandmother. She started it out, and um, so my mom did it, and then I'm doing it. It's a whole lot of fun. The people is just so lovely. Um, you get to just dance to that second line music, and you let your hair down on this day. You know, Mardi Gras is a people's day. And the costume is just an expression of the people. And, and this is what makes it what it is, you know, that you can be who you want on this day. Enjoy this day because everybody going to shake the devil off like the priest said. Go and have fun, you devils, but remember tomorrow is Ash Wednesday. That was Nick Spitzer with American Roots Shortcuts. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Mosaica Chamber Ensemble continues its 17th season entitled A Musical Family with Next Door Neighbors. The adventuresome chamber group will take audiences to distant lands featuring the works of composers from bordering countries. Mosaica violist and President Bruce Owen joins us by phone. Hello, Bruce. Hi, Diane. It's so great to be able to talk to you about our concert. This is quite a musical journey. Tell me, where will you take audiences in this concert? We are going to several countries. We are going to Czechoslovakia, which is now the Czech Republic, of course, and Hungary. And we are also going to Italy and France. Four major stops there. Let's talk about the works on this program you call Next Door Neighbors. What will be performed? We are starting off the concert with a trio that is called Opera Triptych. This is a piece for flute, oboe, and harp, and it's an arrangement of three famous duets by two composers who are respectively from France and Italy, which are, of course, bordering countries. Each of these duets in this piece will be very well known to our audiences. There are two by Puccini and one from his opera, Gianni Schicchi, and then the flower duet from Lacme by the Lieb. Not only are these pieces by composers from countries that are right next door to each other, but the arias themselves are about familial relationships. One is a daughter singing to her father, and one is two characters singing about romantic love. So that will start the concert. We're featuring two quintets that we are really excited to play. One is by Antonin Dvorak. This is actually his second Quintet. This was a relatively early piece. He wrote when he was 34. He originally submitted it to a chamber music competition, which actually won an award. He was not really satisfied with the piece, though, because for one thing, it had two slow movements, and he decided to take out one of the slow movements. He just felt like it was too long, and he later used that movement as a separate piece. 
what's really special about it is it's written for two violins, viola, cello, and bass. After he revised this piece, it was later published as Opus 77. The other quintet that we're playing is by Erno Dachnyanyi, who was a Hungarian composer. This was actually written about 20 years later, when Dachnyanyi was only 17. It was actually part of his school examination. His composition teacher was friends with Johannes Brahms. He told Brahms that he had this really great student, and you should really hear this piece. He was really impressed and he said, I couldn't have written it better myself. Brahms actually arranged for performance of this piece by this 17-year-old in Vienna, and actually Doc Nani himself was playing piano on his work. This is a really early work by Doc Nani. It's actually his Opus 1. Wow. The performances continue to be milestone journeys for Musica as you celebrate 17 years now. How did the ensemble come together, and what are your thoughts about its longevity? We started after Katrina, actually. It was about a year after everybody was getting back on their feet. I really wanted to play some really great chamber music with my colleagues in the LPO. So a bunch of us got together, and we decided to form this group and start doing concerts. That was in the fall of 2006 that we started planning, and then in January 2007, we did our first concert. We've been going at it since. In the meantime, we've had, I think, at least a dozen world premieres, many by local composers, and of course, one of our goals is to feature music that doesn't get played a lot, but always really great music. We've also received several awards and recognition from the Gamut's Tribute to the Classical Arts, grants from Jazz and Heritage Foundation, as well as some others. 
So we feel like we have a lot of support in the community. And the members of the ensemble in the beginning were colleagues from the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra, but now also incorporate professors from Tulane, Loyola, and the University of New Orleans? That's correct. And we have a couple members who have played with the LPO, our pianist, Deanna Thatcher, and our harpist, Kathy Anderson. What brings you joy in these performances? Playing really great music with really talented colleagues who happen to also be my friends. There can't be much more happiness than playing really great works of art with people that you really care about. What are you hoping audiences will remember long after the last note sounds? I think they're going to be amazed by instrumental variety of this concert. I think they're going to leave feeling really happy. Both of the quintets are really joyful pieces. I think audiences are going to leave feeling very, very satisfied. Now, do you have any thoughts about the future of Musaica? I think we are going to just keep planning and finding more music to play. We're always talking about things that we want to do in the future, and one of the things that we've had to deal with a little bit is having members of our group who have had to move on for various reasons. So we are always hoping to find new musicians who would like to join us in our concert. That happens anyway. When we're doing a program that we ask one of the new members of the LPO to perform with us. And sometimes those people end up becoming regular members of our group and then end up playing with us for several years. So I see it continuing to grow and expand. I see us continuing to play for growing audiences. Yeah. Musica violist and president, Bruce Owen, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Oh, thanks so much, Diane. I really enjoyed talking with you about this concert. Musaica Chamber Ensemble will perform two concerts in New Orleans, Monday, February 6th, 7.30 p.m. at St. Charles Avenue Presbyterian Church, which is located at 1545 State Street, and Wednesday, February 8th, 7.30 p.m. at the UNO Performing Arts Center Recital Hall at 2000 Lakeshore Drive. More information online at musaica, M-U-S-A-I-C-A dot org. WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. You're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Let's 
the Petite Theater's production of the Tony and Grammy-nominated musical The Color Purple, based on Alice Walker's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, is being held over with performances running through February 5th. It tells the story of Celie, an African-American woman, and her journey toward empowerment and self-love in the American South. Baton Rouge actress Taylor James stars in the role of Celie, and she joins us now. Taylor, welcome to Louisiana Considered. Hello. And congratulations on your role as Celie in this production. What was it like when you learned you scored the role? Well, I was absolutely shocked. Um, I was actually on a plane. I had just landed and opened my email and immediately started bawling in the middle of the flight. And so, of course, everyone was looking around at me like I'm crazy, but I was so excited. (laughs) I can imagine. You know, there have been many productions of this story, and you have some big shoes to fill. Tell us what sets Le Petit's production apart from the others. So, for me, I think that I just try to keep things as authentic as possible. I think that there are so many moments in this show that are just so human that people can connect to, and I think that every single person that's a part of this production has put their heart and soul into it, and I think we have created something from love that is something that's going to connect to everyone. What do you pull on to get into character? You know, just my humanity, life experiences, things that have happened in my life, things that I have happened in other people that I know. Um, for me, this character in this place, in this setting, my grandmother was born in 1937. She lost her mother when she was six years old. So I just see so much of her in this character, and I just pull from some of the stories that I know, and I think about all the stories of hers that I'll never know, (laughs) that I think inform some of the choices that I make. Now, this story is set in the South, in Georgia, at the turn of the 20th century. How does Celie's journey begin? We start the story off with Celie as a 14-year-old girl who has been through some really rough things, has a really rough start to her life, and... Over the course of the story, she has to try to find, to really find love and ultimately how to make that love big enough for herself, not just for others. What are some of the obstacles that she encounters on the journey? Oh, so many things. Uh, Really awful mistreatment by people who are supposed to be protectors in her life, her father, ultimately her husband, some just really rough mistreatment. What themes are being explored? One of the ones that is the most important for me is love, ultimately. She has so many things that would make anyone else potentially shut down completely. One of the things that happens to her is she is actually molested and ultimately raped by her father. And she has two children by this man and he takes them away from her and she doesn't know what happens to them she doesn't know if they're alive she doesn't know if they're dead she just has to carry on throughout her life knowing that they may possibly be out there and she has no idea what's happened to them but her love for her sister and her children ultimately carries her so far through the story and she has to try to learn how to give that love back to herself and how to do it in a way that's healthy does the color purple play a role? The color purple, I think, for me, just signifies 
the grandeur of life, not just surviving, but thriving. There's so many colors, and purple is so rich and regal and royal, and it just makes you figure out all the special things and all the special moments of life. Does Celie ever find love? She does. She finds love in so many different ways. Now, you're going to have to come and see the show (laughs) to really see all the ways that she finds love, but she finds love in ways big and small throughout the production, for sure. One of the ways that she finds love is through her connection with Suge Avery, who is a woman who most people kind of look down on. Like, she's kind of a wild woman in town. People don't really trust her too much. But Celie actually finds love and starts to kind of find herself just a little bit through that experience. And tell us about the musical score. Oh, this music is so beautiful. It is such a treat to get to sing it every night. It covers so many different styles jazz is soul and it's gospel it's such a treat to the ear really we have a cast of 17 people and everybody sings david pulpus is directing the band downstairs in the pit he is really keeping things tight down there making sure that sound is perfect and crisp and clear for us delfeo marcellus is keeping everything clean for us as well Victor Campbell on the keys is our pianist who is wonderful. We love Victor. He's been with us through the whole rehearsal process, and he's just as much a part of the cast as we are at this point. (laughs) You might actually even see him make a little appearance on stage. Keep your eye out for him. He is really playing in real time on stage with us at one point. Um, They are just keeping that score going for us and giving us everything we need to paint a beautiful canvas for y'all. And who are the uh, principal characters? So, of course, you have me playing Celie, and then, of course, you have Brianna Collier playing Nettie, my sister, who is bringing such a joy and youthful energy to everything. Uh, Queen Shireen Macklin as Suge Avery is not something to be missed. Um, let's see who else. Myra Renee Carter is a powerhouse as Sophia. Oh, my gosh, you cannot miss that. Ryan DeMond Williams, who is our mister... I almost forget that I'm supposed to not like him at times because he's so good. Um, It's a beautiful cast of characters. You do not want to miss this one. What is the big message, Taylor, in this production that will resonate with audiences? I think the biggest message that will resonate with audiences here is finding the inner strength to keep going even when things don't look how they should finding love and being able to give that to others and to yourself and that ultimately God is inside us and everyone else Actress Taylor James is Celie in Le Petit's production of The Color Purple Taylor, it's been fun talking with you Thank you so much, thank you for having me The Color Purple is now extended through February 5th. More information is online at lepetittheater.com.
From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest, Bruce Owen, violist and president of the Musica Chamber Ensemble, and actress Taylor James, who is starring in the role of Celie in the Petite Theater's production of The Color Purple. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Procell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.